everybody. Welcome to the Empathy Machine Podcast. I'm Andrew Ford. Join me as always. Josh Ickes. And we are here to talk about the career and works of George A. Romero, who, as some of you I'm sure already know, this happened a while ago, he passed away from lung cancer recently. Yep. At the, I, I heard several really bad jokes about that. Yeah, also. the the whole like, oh, he's he's not gonna stay dead. He'll be right back. I'm like, I mean, I get it. Yeah, but it's sort of like the cartoon of Jay and Silent Bob, like at the grave of like, I forget who it was that died, but someone had like a little cartoon. They're like sad and they're like holding flowers at the grave of somebody. I think it might. It wasn't Carrie Fisher. It was somebody. And I'm like, yeah, I know you mean well. but that kind of (laughs) sucks yeah i don't know i'm a little too sensitive especially after kind of going back and watching some of these movies it actually made me even a little more sensitive about it so uh, i don't know Uh, but we come to to celebrate george right there's one, one quick thing before we get into his movies is i thought it was a nice touch and i whatever site i read the uh initial report was published they said he uh he passed away his wife and his daughter were there and they were listening to the quiet man soundtrack and i was like yes there we go that's a good yeah who could ask for more you don't really want to nod off to it it's pretty punchy soundtrack (laughs) but well what a thing to criticize i mean i'm just saying (laughs) okay peaceful it's not like brian eno ambient music is what i'm saying but it was very sweet so so here's here's the game now Mm -hmm. if if you go out listening to a movie score which one is it i don't know Uh, that's a tough one Mm -hmm. i mean assassination of jesse james maybe i mean it's just like the sad I i don't know i like sad music anyway that's probably uh, the yeah that's true it's not from it's not the film i think that sums up my i don't know it's a tough one if i'm if i'm for, well, the, yeah. for like for the obituary it would probably be like jurassic park or like no it, close encounters i think is a little bit both i can listen to that i love oh, that score i have uh, i believe two copies of that one on vinyl actually the vintage copies i might go cool hand luke okay that seems seems like fitting in a very circular kind of manner yeah well because you're going to uh you're going to die from eating too many eggs yeah i mean i thought everybody knew that (laughs) that's as as the the gypsy woman hath foretold (laughs) that's how i'm going out of this world i'm going out the same way i came in (laughs) well uh yeah now that we've uh, we started off all high and mighty and then we we devolved into nonsense Yes, we, we digressed <laughs> rather quickly. But why should we be talking about George Romero? I won't do, do like a blow-by-blow blow of his backstory because I feel like there's other people who have, you know, there's other podcasts that have done that better, other articles that, you know, have laid, laid out the groundwork there of how he started. And I don't have it all to hand right now, but basically he... Mm-hmm. He made Night of the Living Dead in 1968 or 1967, released in 1968, and it be you know it was like the birth of the modern horror movie, and really, and also the birth of, in a way, the birth of independent cinema. I believe John Cassavetes' Faces technically beat like beat it to theaters, but I mean, other than still existing in the Criterion Collection and being a really good movie, it's not a movie people refer to 
as often as Night of the Living Dead, and that hasn't had anywhere near the impact on popular culture that Night of the Living Dead did. Part of that's because Night of the Living Dead, right. unfortunately, fell into public domain for a while. So anytime you're watching a movie, usually an indie movie, probably a bad one a lot of the time. <laughs> they just want a movie on TV. In the background, it's, it's uh-huh. Night of the Living Dead. And yeah, I think uh, it can't be... For even even people who aren't fans of horror movies have to, you know, should understand that uh, George Romero kickstarted the independent film scene as much as anybody else, if not more than anyone else. He literally like changed the course of film history. How many people can you say that about? <laughs> Depending on exactly which parts of current popular culture you want to look at, he, he's like one of the keystones of. I think what we have today, you know, the certainly something like the walking dead wouldn't be what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, he not only revolutionary revolutionized independent filmmaking, but also he revolutionized zombies. Mm-hmm. But before his movie, zombies were primarily of the slave variety, the the very the kind of Haitian uh, mystical voodoo. You know, they went out and did their master's bidding kind of thing. They really didn't have all all the aspects that we know of the modern zombie. A lot of that was because of him and his one little movie that he did, which he then you know expanded upon to greater and lesser degrees over the over the following decades, but. Mm-hmm. But I do think that just that one aspect of it, that's the thing that people tend to latch onto. But you can trace the lineage of all of, you know, th- there's there's conventions now for Walking Dead. You can trace it back to a guy who made, I believe he was making industrial films at the time mm-hmm. in, you know, the countryside of Pennsylvania. So that's, <laughs> I think that's pretty cool. And it's definitely something i think to aspire to also the fact that he seemed through everything he seemed pretty unflappable yeah i tend to think of him as like the stan lee of horror except for he also i don't think he really stole other people's ideas but he's like he's like the figurehead right he's like kind of uh, the icon he was the grandfather not just the the fact that he made that movie but I think the way that he treated the horror community too. Oh, definitely. And I think that's something that maybe people who aren't as familiar with horror aren't as familiar with. But if you've ever been to a horror movie convention, I think it, and maybe it's putting too much on Romero's legacy to say this, but you know, a lot of the people who, who make horror films tend to be very nice and personable when you meet them. Like, and the community that, that springs up around horror films, contrary to what might be assumed by, I don't know, Tipper Gore. I don't know. <laughs> like yeah, the squares, the squares, <laughs> what might be assumed by like <laughs> conventionally, it's like people watching a violent, gory movie. I mean, we watch a ton of horror movies ourselves, but we're, we're pretty genteel a lot of the time. <laughs> I mean, it's very, it, it, there's a, there's a, a warmth to Romero as a person that I think for, for whether or not that's, he cared, he inspired, I don't know. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are just genuinely nice that made horror movies and they can, you know, but I don't think it's a mistake that he fit right in to that community. And then he kept making horror movies, even though he, he really did want to do other stuff. And he tried really hard to make other stuff over the years. He always had a, a difficult time trying to work within a studio system mm-hmm. and work with where he didn't, you know, he kind of wanted to, have control over his vision and, and be able to do, you know, tell the story he wanted to tell. And that, you know, there were other, 
other things that there's like a famous story that came out this week where he supposedly was in a meeting, like a pitch meeting with an agent and the agent uh, paused the meeting, like during Romero's pitch three separate times to take calls. And on like, while he was still, still on the third call, Romero grabbed the guy who's in there with him and said, let's just, we're we're going, let's go. And they just left. And like, he just wasn't going to deal with it. And I'm like, you know, it's admirable. It may not have been, wise from a career standpoint but it's certainly admirable because i mean we all want to be that we all want to think that we would have the courage to just walk away from something like that be like oh you know he could have made a multi-million dollar movie and made a ton of money off of it and gotten a great deal on it and you know created another horror for i mean who knows what that meaning could have led to but you know just to have the have the principles to just be like i don't want to deal with these people (laughs) is really admirable Anyway, I think we got kind of far afield from uh, Gesundheit. Well, oh, thank I think you, we're thank le- I think we're leaving Uh-oh. that in. That was pretty. That was a good. That was a good sneeze, man. Oof. oof. These are pretty good. Oofa doofa. Ah, like are, my shoulder hurts now. The people people need to hear this. That's important. <laughs> All day long during allergy season. <laughs> yeah. The creative director where I work is right outside of my my office, my media room cave that I live in uh, mm-hmm. when I'm in the office, and that's all she hears all day is like me sneezing and then sniffling. <laughs> and I just, there's just like a, a, a wall of, uh, bless you. Cause Heights coming in and people occasionally bring me <laughs> tissues. So yeah, it's what I'm known for. They ever bring you like a Zyrtec or something or like a 24 hour allergy. Well, it, I, I have, don't I have know a doctor like friend. Training. I have a doctor friend who told me you can just pound those. Oh really? I mean, you could take like a cocktail. This, you could take like two or three. Is this it's not, a, it's um, not his field of expertise. This is not. This is not for anyone listening. This is for you. <laughs> just, this is for Josh Hickis. Okay. But yeah, you get to, if, you, if you take like two or th- two or three Zyrtex, it has the same effect. Nothing. Nothing bad happens. I think they're sugar pills, to be honest. Okay. Well, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna overload on those things then. I mean, don't go nuts, but. No, I'm going nuts now. I'm I mean, doing if you take it like right a Zyrtec now. and like a Claritin, that'd be okay too. And then I don't know, hard drugs. They're maybe. not going to They're not going to counteract each other. No, no, they won't. They don't cancel each other out. No, I. But just in case, you should take a third one. I do. I do have to add a disclaimer here. Do not take hard drugs. That's. Oh yeah, don't I, take hard I drugs. Have, no. Yes, don't I, do that. Of course. We are incredibly far afield now. <laughs> well, you, yeah, I mean, I think allergies are contagious, much like getting bit by a zombie. Very contagious. It's so so close it's there we it was, go yeah it's not airborne it's, so, not, it's a tough yeah <laughs> one of the things that i think i don't know i haven't been able to take in every bit of memorial or everybody's deconstruction of his life's work at this point um it's just been way way too many people throwing stuff out there i mean and we're just you know adding kindling to the fire at this point but Kind of the stuff that I think that we're going to talk about today is a little bit underreported on still. And I think right now is a prime time for people to look back over not just his his zombie titles, but kind of the the entirety of what George Romero could do. To that end, we're going to talk about Martin and Knight Riders, two, two lesser, yes. lesser known, definitely lesser seen. Mm-hmm. And only recently have they been really heralded in any regard films Romero made 
It did not have zombies in yeah, it. Par- <laughs> no, I was going to say, partially, like you mentioned before, um, Night of the Living Dead became super popular because there was no... Well, through through a, a a form filing error or something, there was no copyright put on it. Mm-hmm. And didn't you did you tell me recently that they had been able to get the a copyright back on it? Yeah, so sort of a, a happy ending. Late last year, Janus Films were, is, has been working on a restoration with Martin Scorsese's like Cinema Foundation. I don't know if it's the World Cinema Foundation. Anyway, they found like nine new minutes of footage that they thought were lost from like an old negative of the film. Uh-huh. And they are cutting them back in, and because they're adding new footage, they are able to copyright that film with the new footage in it. Um, okay. And so, and Criterion has the rights, and they're I'm presumably going to put it out probably next October, not this coming October, but next year. I would imagine right. they tend to be seasonal with their horror movies because they don't release that many. It's actually a funny thing. Uh, it's something that apparently the other note. I'm gonna draw a blank. The guy who uh, ended up producing Return of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. He tried to do this with Night of the Living Dead on DVD by shooting new footage and just throwing it in there and copywriting that. Yes. And so yeah. So there's all kinds yeah. of weird. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say one one more diversion before we get to to Martin. <laughs> have you seen that version? I have not. I know it's some, they did something similar to a Mario Bava film with a. It was the film was Rabid Dogs. His son reshot a bunch of stuff and they re, they made a different cut of it called Kidnapped, but they shot it like twenty years apart. And I'm assuming Night of the Living Dead is much the same. Yeah, the first copy that I got on DVD was that copy. It's a two disc set and it mm-hmm. came in like a a silver kind of case and it had a booklet and stuff with it and. It had both the, you know, the original cut and then this new one, which if I recall, like the costumes looked really, really low rent, might've been shot on video or, you know, cheaply transferred to to video for editing and distribution purposes. Mm -hmm. And it just, uh, it wasn't clever and it didn't add anything to it, but I kind of saw it as hopefully, you know, a work of love and a lot of like fan films and stuff have sprung up around that. I watched a, uh, a fan version of night of the living dead online where a bunch of different animators took turns at basically recreating the film, like in their own different styles. Huh. It's, it's kind of interesting as an experiment. It wouldn't certainly wouldn't ever replace watching the original film for me. Uh, you know, I like the fact that these kinds of things happened around that particular movie by the way it was uh, uh john russo just to oh yeah john, john russo he was the other guy i don't think that i shared this on our episode where we talked about movie going experiences i've been on a lot of cold medicine since then <laughs> but one of the cool experiences i had here in nashville was getting to see night of the living dead with an unsuspecting audience at the belcourt theater and the, the fact that people were kind of mocking it at the beginning, you know, they were trying to do mystery science theater 3000, which isn't, it, it's incredibly hard to do. First of all, I don't think they realize that those people watch the movie multiple times and write all that stuff. <laughs> they, they think they literally are riffing off the top of their head. Well, but, every, every once in a while, uh, they'll, they'll find one thing and that'll justify the whole thing for them. They'll, they'll make one funny right, joke. Exactly. Uh, actually, yeah. So you did, uh, you did mention it cause I, I remember right now cause yeah. it was, it was like after something else, right? Like you, guys, um, well, you went to see it. something and they just threw it on randomly at the. I've got court. seen it. 
I've seen it twice. The Bell Court once was before okay. Rocky Horror, and the the second time was That's just right, last yeah. year uh, after The Shining. Just to to get to sit in a room, you know, with uh, a movie that I had seen multiple times at that point, with a bunch of people who were mocking it, and then by the end were totally drawn into it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something that transcends its kind of like super low budget indie aesthetic. And I think that that thread is definitely borne out in the further works that, that he went on to make, you know, he had better intentions and better aspirations and better abilities than were even demonstrated there. I think what's, what's interesting too about night of the living dead is, is, uh, I can, I can un- almost understand that sort of like, cause it is like, it starts off and it's something they recognize immediately with that, like they're coming to get you, Barbara, like all that stuff. And it, it's kind right. of played like loud and it's a little silly, but it's like it, as it, as it goes on and as the film just like generates ahead of steam and as you see what he's able to like actually put on screen, you're like, Oh shit, where's this going? Right. I don't know if it was in dance macabre or if it was something Stephen King just said in an interview somewhere, or maybe like just talking about night, let me daddy said he felt like he was in the hands of a madman. <laughs> And he'd never yes. felt that in the theater before. And I think when I, I revisited that on the day Romero passed away, it's interesting. The ending is so like it. it I mean, it's I can't you can't believe it made it onto a movie that came out in 1968. It had to have been an independent right. movie. Like it's insane because I and I had forgotten. I knew that it ended with with uh, the uh, Dwayne Jones's character being shot by a r- redneck militia, you know, and because he's African American, then it's like, oh, of course, like you know, it's, uh, there's racial overtones. And Romero will always say like, he, we just cast the best actor we, we had, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, you know, I buy it. But then, and then I had forgotten that after that scene where he's shot, the credits roll over these still images that look like newspaper <laughs> photographs of yes. like lynchings, and I'm yep. like, oh my god, he knew exactly what he was doing this is hard to watch yeah and and it, it you can feel very directly its influence and and millions of people not millions but enough people have made this comparison already that it, it bears a direct influence on this year's get out oh yes the ending is if get out especially is almost uh spoilers for get out it's almost an inversion of that ending in a, in a, yes. in a very interesting way and Jordan Peele absolutely was was aware that he was commenting on this because he's a huge horror fan and and he's he said as much in interviews and I hope Romero got to see Get Out I feel like he would have he would have appreciated it quite a bit yeah but enough about Night of the Living Dead uh, Josh we watched Martin we did and for me this was the the second time that I watched it the first time that I'd really considered it though mm-hmm. same same here actually and this is a fantastic fucking movie isn't it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really really good. That's all, guys. That's all, guys. (laughs) I remember I watched it a few years ago. Um, I had borrowed it from the the DVD resale shop that I was working at and took it home to watch. And I don't know if it just didn't strike me. I didn't pay enough attention to it. But I thought it was pretty good. But this time, because I knew that I'd be kind of talking about it a little more critically, I was definitely locked into it. Man, it definitely rewards that type of attention, I think. Oh, absolutely. Rewatching it this time, I had a similar experience. Like, I remember I bought the DVD, and I couldn't remember if I had it with me here in, in California or not, because I didn't move all my stuff out here. I sent some of it home. Mm-hmm. That's not really relevant. But I was like, did I, was I smart enough to hold on to Martin? Because I, I remember that it was good. And I remembered that, and I thought I should probably hang on to it. And the good uh-huh. news is I did hang on to it. 
because I'm smart sometimes. And uh, so I was able to watch it. On <laughs> You're smart, not not dumb like people say. Not dumb You're like smart. people say. Because <laughs> the DVD is uh, unfortunately out of print right now, and there's nowhere to, to purchase it, uh, to stream it, uh, that I could find. Uh, hopefully right. I'll change soon. But I was able to watch the DVD, and I was just... I was just, yeah, like you said, like locked in. Like I started it and the movie just throws you right into what it's going to be like immediately. And oh, yeah. I got, I, I could totally understand why it didn't get much of a, like, I feel like, I don't know if the story is that it's distributor kind of buried it or if the story is that it came out and no one wanted to see it or that no one wanted to pick it up in the first place. But whatever happened, it didn't, it, there was like a two year one, like it was made and ready for release, I believe in 1976, but it didn't come out f- like in wide release until after Dawn of the Dead became a hit in 78. Okay. From what I understand, or they, they came out somewhat concurrently maybe, but it's a, it's a very melancholy and like mm-hmm. despairing, I would say movie. I guess we should say like the premise of it. Martin, the main character is coming to he's he's uh, on his way to pittsburgh or like a rural town outside of pennsylvania i don't think it's actually pittsburgh it might be no um is uh, it the i the watched town? the yeah and i watched the behind the scenes uh sections and they talked about the fact that he kind of fell in love with the little town that it was in uh, mm-hmm. which i cannot remember off the top of my head so continue <laughs> braddock Braddock, Braddock, Pennsylvania. There, there we, we go. go. Uh, so he's in Braddock, Pennsylvania, and he's living with his elderly cousin. From the very beginning, his elderly cousin tells him that he w- he is going to save his eternal soul, and then he is going to destroy him because he is a he is a Nosferatu. He is a vampire. He actually uses the word Nosferatu. And yeah, I think I think it's actually his. Well, there's some question about it because whether it's his his uncle. Or his cousin kind of depends on which interpretation of the film you're taking, or of of Martin himself you go with. Well, yeah, because supposedly Martin claims to be 84 years old. Yes. And a vampire. Yes. I don't know. I, I was under the impression that it was it was just his cousin, but I don't know the the description. But I can I've see read either way. Yeah. Talk about that he's the like grand uncle or, or grand cousin or something yeah i'm not sure so an elderly relation regardless of their relation it's it's a it's a murderous relationship let's say that <laughs> it's a it's a very strange like he basically from the beginning says he's going to murder martin at some point he tells martin yeah, not to attack anyone in the city then we follow just martin as he goes about his day, you know, he's he drinks blood, but he isn't like allergic to garlic or crosses or sunlight or anything like that. He drugs women and he like slices them with razor blades and then he drinks their blood. See, as you well, as you're saying apologizing it, the whole time. Yes. I was going to say as you're saying it, it it sounds horrifying and disgusting, but Romero and who was it John Amplis? Mm-hmm. who plays Martin, they, they managed to make him into a really like a figure that you have a lot of empathy for. At least I did. Mm-hmm. He really does seem like just a broken individual and he doesn't fit in anywhere. And I don't know, even the, the opening scene, mm-hmm. which takes place in a, in a rail car, like a, an overnight train and it was, they shot it in an actual train. You know, they didn't have super low budget movie. They didn't have budget to uh, make a, a set with, with flyaway walls or anything. 
Mm-hmm. So this was like super gorilla. There was a train kind of off on a siding track and they had uh, a guy outside running around with lights and uh, branches to simulate the, the idea that the train is moving. <laughs> they said that they only had like 10 to 15 people between the cast and the crew. Oh, wow. Yeah. But th- the opening scene is kind of this drawn out and kind of sloppy murder that uh, mm-hmm. Martin commits that, I mean, it, it sets you in the world and you immediately, at least I didn't know what to think. Mm-hmm. It was, it, it's frightening and disturbing, but also the way that Martin acts and moves and thinks of himself. And we come to see it like literally later in the movie, how he thinks of himself. It, he's very kind of this romantic swooning figure and just you see his whole methodology of taking a syringe and and drugging a lady and then cutting open her her wrist and drinking her blood and he's very methodical this whole time uh, he's very clean about it and he makes sure not to get caught mm. and well, so he, he does also get them both naked yes there is a there is definitely like a uh it's not just figurative rape. It's literal implied rape. Yes. Uh, as well. And it's, yeah, the super troubling. <laughs> and you, and you feel really, you feel really bad for the guy. Yeah. You feel bad for everybody involved. That's true. It, it kind of reminded me of one of my favorite movies from the last couple of years, green room, where mm-hmm. even though Patrick Stewart is like the head of the skinhead drug dealing organization, you mm-hmm. realize nobody wants to be in this situation. Like everyone just thinks it's shitty and they kind of want to go home. That's oh, kind of how I felt about he's totally like a making, making Blair would play him in a movie right now. Yes. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Exactly. Yep. Oh man, that's perfect. It's really, really interesting. I think one of the ways that Romero gets us on his side, I mean, first of all, yeah, Amplis does do, a, he does give a really good performance. It's not just that it's sympathetic, like you feel sympathy for him because he's like, he looks young and sort of like, but he like plays it like a type of character we've seen before in a way that we've never seen that character played before. He's methodical and, and, and calculating like a killer, but he's also just like, he, it's like he has to do it. It's like he doesn't want to do it. Like he, he wants to, but he doesn't want to. And there's the implication that it isn't living up to what he actually wants it to be. Because Romero shows us right. these like gothic black and white flash, you know, flashes of what he thinks that, you know, it's like. Like there's a, before he goes into the train car, he sees like the woman on like a, like waiting for him in bed and like her hair is down. And she's like, Martin, it's so good to see you. But then he opens up the door and she's like not even in there. She's in the bathroom. And uh, she comes out of the bathroom, she's got a face mask on, and then it's just this ugly scene that happens afterwards. And it's, you know, he's saying, like, you know, if you let me, you know, sedate you, I won't hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. And it's just like, you watch it, and like, it's just really, it's hard to take, you know, a little bit. And then that's the beginning of the movie. And like, you know, the whole movie, I think it's less than 90 minutes. And you just spend this time watching, getting to know Martin and seeing him go about and doing these awful things. And, you still feel just overwhelming sympathy for him and for every, you know, it's just, no one is really, it's hard to put into words, like quite what's what, like, I think Romero captures a larger in a larger sense. He captures like a city in decay a little bit. Yes. And Tom Savini plays a character in this that basically makes that explicit. Like, you know, I'm going elsewhere for work. 
or I'm looking to get out of here for work. I can't be here, you know, the whole time. Yeah, it's this great mixture of through Martin's eyes, you see like like I said, kind of the swooning romanticism. There's this the supernatural possibly a horror element that comes in. Mm-hmm. But then it's kind of like they're at the, the dead end of the American dream in this town. Like it's a, a rust belt town that's fallen on hard times. And it just seems like, I don't know, it really is kind of a, uh, a fantastic vampire story for, you know, the modern era. I'm really surprised that it hasn't gotten more attention because of how he really weaves those threads of like the economic discontent mm-hmm. and personal sense of isolation in through this movie. Like it seems really prescient, you know, especially for something made in the, the mid seventies. I mean, I guess a lot of the stuff that we're living through right now is kind of a mirror of, <laughs> of what <laughs> happened in the mid seventies. As I was watching it this time, I was continually surprised at how good it was and how little I've heard about it. Yeah. I think, um, I think part of that is, is due to availability and part of it's due to it being, I think it's a kind of movie that, yeah, like we just went in depth on the opening sequence. Like if that turns you, if that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, you're not going to get on board for the rest of it. I can understand that, I guess, but there, there is another uh, element to it, which is that supposedly the producer, Richard Rubenstein is uh, extra particular and extra. What's the word I'm looking for? Like he doesn't like to license out prints to screen of this or Dawn of the Dead specifically, and that's the reason okay. neither of them are, and that's also part of the reason neither of them are available. The licensing rights. He doesn't want to give it up. He's he asked for what I think most companies would say is too much money for uh, them okay. to justify releasing. I mean, they could probably justify Dawn of the Dead because it would sell like crazy, but they couldn't really justify Martin. And the problem should that a Dawn right. of the Dead release is coming. And I hope one's coming for Martin too, but I think it's interesting and I don't begrudge the guy trying to get more money for him and, and for now Romero's estate, you know, right. and any kind of sale that would happen. Some more power to him, but that's a big, I think that's a big part of why like it doesn't make reps. They don't, there aren't a lot of rep screenings as a result, I would imagine. Um, if they are, they're from yeah. collector prints, much like Dawn of the Dead. Because in this, this short runtime and with everything we've already talked about, like there's several threads that we've left out. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think about like the kind of the, the media commentary, you know, through the, through the disc jockey and, uh, Martin's relationship with him? what do you think of that, that thread of it? So that I think is really interesting because the way that, like, I almost look at it as there's a, there's a way to read the movie where none of what he does like none of the none of the people he kills are actually none of that's actually happening they're all yeah. stories he makes up for the disc jockey and he's just really lonely and he makes these stories up to talk to somebody yeah there's a um kind of that american psycho mm-hmm. element that you could you could read it a couple different ways so that, i mean that's that's one way that i see it because especially because he gives so much detail mm-hmm. that i would imagine it would be a lot more serious than just like, hey, like, why don't you tell me where you live? You know, why don't you tell us what your name is, mystery caller? You know, like, and right. I feel like, and I feel like he gives all that detail and like, he can probably be heard elsewhere in the house. And it, it, he's also presumably killing people in the town or nearby. You know, maybe not in the city proper because his uh, his cousin tells him, "Do not kill anyone in my city." in this right. city <laughs> and uh he, he effectively i mean he does uh, i mean there's maybe 
it seems like he goes out, out, out to the outskirts of town to do it. So maybe it's not in the city proper. So that's how his cousin doesn't notice. But there's a, a turn later on where he doesn't kill somebody, but it looks like he did without spoiling too much because most people haven't seen this. Yes. And his cousin immediately knows. And I feel like because of that, it's like, oh, that, that pushes me towards maybe none of the other murders actually happen. Yeah. Like it might just be kind of delayed adolescent flights of fancy or something. Yeah. He just wants to be somebody and he's making up these stories to tell this shock jock on the, the overnight radio show. And I mean, whether or not that's actually the reading that, I mean, I think Romero's comfortable with it being read both ways, but I think, if that is like like that reading is such a sad reading of the movie and that accurately i think i I feel like if if you feel sad hearing that that's the that's the tone of the movie whether or not that's the actual reading of it it has that sort of melancholy like you're watching a character who would believably just sit around and make up stories and daydream about murdering people and drinking their blood right and then call into a radio show about it right and whether it is within the fiction of the movie whether it actually happens or it's martin telling us the story of the home invasion sequence that happens partway through the film that's a fantastic sequence i mean home invasion is one of my big fears Mm -hmm. and just the whole way that that sequence was put together. I don't know. It's it's almost like when I finally went back and watched the movie Rafifi mm-hmm. after seeing like a bunch of heist movies and seeing uh, people reference it, you know, like Michael Mann and um, Steven Soderbergh reference it and then finally watching it and realizing like it still has a great impact. That's what this sequence was like. It was like something that you would have seen in a much newer film like just mm-hmm. the sensibility of it and kind of the the comedic chaos that spins mm-hmm. out from him running around this house trying to keep these people inside the house that was a, a section where thinking about the fact that i don't think people give romero enough credit <laughs> because <laughs> the the way that that whole thing is paced and the you know the the comedy of it and the the frightening aspects of it all kind of being in balance was, I don't know. I thought it was superb. Oh, I agree. First of all, it's absolutely terrifying moments like where so for, he goes in cause the husband's not there. Like he's mm-hmm. waiting for the husband to leave. He like takes the place out and then he goes in and she's cheating on her husband with another guy. Yes. And he wasn't expecting this other guy to be there. And the other guy thinks he's caught by like her son or something. He thinks that they're caught. Like he doesn't know who this person is, but assumes that she knows him. And she, she she has to say like, I don't know him. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's so terrifying. (laughs) And like, if I'm the, and then the guy gets like, not only that, but like, uh, and this was, um, I feel like this was well before the, the AIDS crisis happened, but he's getting, Martin just stabs this guy with a needle. That's terrifying to to look at now. I'm like, what oh, kind yeah. of needle are you stabbing me with? Did you subject me with heroin now or something or worse? You know, like what is going on? Right. And it's just such a, a horrific sequence that unfolds. And then it's about 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. It feels like, but not yeah. in a bad way. Like it doesn't feel like it's over long. Like it's, I remember as a way of explaining, like a lot of the time when I'm watching a movie at home and it's not a good habit, I'll put it on and then I'll pause it. And I'll go do something else for a minute and I'll come back. Uh huh. And then, I'll go like make a pot of coffee or I'll like cook a blue apron meal. Not, we're not sponsored by blue apron, but I use it. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) 
Blue, ap- blue apron do at us. <laughs> Their ad copy this week was really weak. It's like I'm not. <laughs> we're not sponsored by them. Sometimes I stop watching movies and make a blue apron meal. But and I was actually getting that. Like I, I'd been sitting watching Martin on my computer uh, for a little bit, and then I was like, maybe I'll like you know pause it for a second and like. And I'd started pretty late, so I was like, I could just go to bed and then wake up fishing in the morning. And then that sequence started, mm-hmm. and I was just like utterly enthralled. And by the time it was over, I was like, I was like twenty minutes left. Okay, cool. I'll just watch the rest of the movie. I mean, it was like, is and then the rest of the movie is great too. And like the whole, you know, it, I think uh, it speaks to Romero's skills as an editor. Yes, that I think he they don't get commented on enough. I think maybe rightfully so in the sense that his most famous film is probably Dawn of the Dead, or most seen film is Dawn of the Dead, and it's probably most seen in the least edited version of it, which is like two and a half hours and could probably have used a sharper edit. And there are sharper edits out there that are, are, are good. But yeah, I I think, uh, this is an example of like, he, he, it's his most disciplined movie, I think by far. And that is a huge, like mark in its favor. What did you think of, uh, I don't know if we want to talk about the ending, but what do you think of maybe how the sequence ends up? Because to me, the, the sequence, like, the tension just, you you think the tension's about to break, and you're, uh-huh. or you think it's going to cut to another day, or like some other thing, it just keeps going. <laughs> yeah, it's really kind of a, a downhill slide from there to the end of the movie for him. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that I wasn't about to check out like you were uh, and go to <laughs> sleep or something. But Well, I'm famous for going to sleep doing movies all the time you, you're you're famous for going to sleep full stop go. that's i've, I've seen Let's you look. sleep in so many environments it's amazing i, I did watch all the scooby-doo 2 monsters unleashed which i slept through time, so. which yeah so. a lot of a lot of other people slept through yeah there we go all right uh, Move, yeah and, and who's the winner there <laughs> when that sequence it really did i don't know kind of reset the hook going mm-hmm. into the last act of the film and for a movie about a kid who may or may not be murdering people to drink their blood it's heartbreaking mm-hmm. like i don't i don't know any other way to put it and i don't want people to like look at me askance because of that like i said before i'm problematically empathetic so identification with people but he's he really does come across as like this lost soul and it's like things kind of finally catch up to him Mm -hmm. really i don't know kind of unexpected ironic uh twist of fate towards the end oh absolutely without without giving anything anything away yeah we've been talking about how sad and despairing and how he's a lost soul it it has a tragic ending and the film has a tragic ending and it's something that I don't know if it was just because there are a lot of films from the seventies that have really, they're, they're notorious for downer endings. Like that's a decade that's notorious for downer endings. And, and I feel like, I feel like if, a, if a, that, that kind of ending, the kind of, I don't know, there, I'm trying to give a, a, a counter example of a downer ending from the seventies. that doesn't work there. That wouldn't work today because I think that this uh-huh. downer ending would work today because it's of a piece with the rest of the film. Oh yeah, totally. In, in ways that sometimes these, endings or not it's very it i think it's much more modern than a lot of the i don't know i mean i guess there's a lot of big modern horror films from the 70s i'm not sure what I'm, exactly i'm trying to say that's not good uh, <laughs> it's a very good I mean, movie I, I do, <laughs> it's really good i do think that if it 
came out and started playing film festivals right now, it would be massively talked about. You know, I, I think that it would get a lot of attention for whoever made it between maybe the producer and the timing. And I don't know the, the sensibilities at the time, it might not have, you know, caught the world on fire, but I, I kind of, I think if people watched today, it would, you know, it definitely should be more, more seen and more talked about. Absolutely. That's what I think. You, you, you can go against me if you want, but, <laughs> uh, it's funny actually that you mentioned if it played film festivals, everyone would talk about it because there's a very, very, very similar movie called the transfiguration okay. directed by Michael O'Shea about a young African-American kid who is uh, living with his uh, older brother in New York city. And he was, I think recently let out of juvenile hall or something or like a, you recently got out of somewhere where he, where he was put because he tortured or he like killed and tortured animals or would like drink their blood or okay. something. And it's, it's out on, uh, I don't know if it's out on iTunes by the time this comes out, but it, I watched it on voodoo where it was available to rent. Basically mm-hmm. like he, he's just a sad kid who drinks people's blood in like modern day New York city after rewatching. I watched it before I rewatched Martin because I mean, before even before Romero had passed and everything, I, I made it a point to see this movie and I didn't realize how, how similar it is to Martin. It's just a very, very interesting updating of it. I, w- I would say, I think it's well worth checking out. I think it's exceptionally well made. And uh, it gets, it's another film that gets much like Martin. It gets very good performances from unknown actors. And I, I mean, I don't think too many people are talking about it. Like more people definitely should be talking about it, but I have seen at least a couple people say it's like the best thing they've seen. Like, uh, I think uh, it was Jacob Knight, uh, whatever festival he saw it at, he writes for birth movies, death, uh, whatever festival he saw it at, he said it was the best thing he'd seen at the festival by far. I think it was like, I don't want to name the festival and get it wrong, but basically it has been getting some raves, but I don't think I don't, for whatever reason, it's not getting a lot of recognition. I think it has a weird distributor or something. I don't know, but when it does show up, wherever it shows up, it's well worth checking out. Especially if you can't see Martin, <laughs> you could at least see this because Martin may not be available and you might not have 65 bucks to buy the DVD. So, well, you, you mentioned that the 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 cast is r- relatively unknown, but they're not unknown to us because we did see them, many of them, in another movie by George A. Romero. Wait, wait, wait no, I'm kidding. A little film. <laughs> uh, wait, what now? We we watched a little film called Night Riders, which I have seen the cover of the poster art for this movie for years mm-hmm. always uh rolled my eyes i mean I, I hate to out myself like that especially once i finally watched the movie and it was pretty fantastic a little over long but first off if you have seen if you know the poster art for this film don't don't judge the book by its cover because <laughs> I, I thought it was going to be like a fantasy film with motorcycles in it that's always the impression that I got, mm-hmm. but it was something so much more. It was, it was really good. What's the, what's the basic skeleton of Night Riders, Andrew? So basically Night Riders is a film about a touring band of like a Ren fair type place, but they like, they tour from city to city and uh, put on shows where they uh, joust on motorcycles and Ed Harris, a very young Ed Harris in one of his first film roles 
if not his first, uh-huh. very early. It was before the right stuff. Uh, I know that he uh, plays the king, and uh, he just r- really, really believes in their lifestyle as you know, like a higher calling. It's a very unique movie. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> um, the, the, the plot. There's. The, I would say, what's the conflict? Do you think, or is there really like a? There's several, I guess. But I mean, it's it's essentially a like Lamort to Arthur mm-hmm. or the, or the natural, uh, if you're, <laughs> if you're familiar with your, your high school, uh, lit classes, it's, it's kind of another take on the Arthur Ar- Arthurian legend. Hey, I had a speech impediment as a kid. R's are really hard for me. Okay. It's, it's another take on the legend of King Arthur, <laughs> except for set at this weird Ren fair traveling Ren fair, instead of necessarily being tempted away from like their noble quest, they're tempted away from their life of togetherness in their Camelot. That is this Ren fair and into decadence and excess of, I guess, Hollywood. Some of the writers are. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's kind of the, the conflict is big wigs come a calling because the show is a hit they want to make some of the the motorcycle riders into superstars basically yeah yes. that's that's the core con- then the the ed harris and the basically the villain is uh set up as tom savini is like the the black knight and he he gets i think the largest role he's had in, he has in any romero film the largest acting role anyway as uh-huh. uh, this character and he's pretty good in it like I'm surprised he didn't act more between this and Martin his two best performances certainly that I've seen well you mentioned earlier the uh it's a little bit long just to be clear with everyone it's two hours and 25 minutes long it's quite a long movie yeah I I like to think of it as Romero's Inception because in Inception it's like the reading of Inception is that you know Leonardo DiCaprio was the director and like the writer is uh Ellen Page's character, and then there's like producers, and you know, all this. It's like an analog for a film crew, basically. It's been a while since I've actually broken it down or thought about it to break it down, but that's generally. And this is a similar, it's similar, but without the specific one to one comparison. But this is more like this is Romero's vision of making independent films and trying to remain independent and true to your vision and staying apart from corporate interests and other producers and people that. You know, basically staying true to yourself and to the people around you, and and preserving your community. And it's kind of a sweet movie, would you say? It's very warm. It, it's very, yeah, it's very sweet. It's kind of oriented on this family that Ed, Ed Harris has pulled together. I mean, all these people are misfits from like straight society. Basically, I was really pleased actually with treatment of both its female characters and its homosexual characters. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that it's, it's acknowledged that the female mechanic who's played by George Romero's wife at the time. Is that right? Am I getting that right? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. They were, they were married in 1980. So I don't know if they got married on the set or after. Okay. But yeah, th- that she's the best mechanic. She's the, the, best like at a traditionally like male role and then there is the guy who plays kind of the carnival barker whose sexuality is is questioned 
several times in the first part of the film until he finally admits that he's gay. The scene that he admits it in is, is kind of a sweet and touching scene. And by the end of the movie, he's found a love interest. And I don't know, it's not the type of thing that you would expect from that I expected anyway from a movie where guys dress up in armor and ride motorcycles around. <laughs> it's it's definitely a more progressive stance than I would have expected. Romero has a, a just there's a, a generosity to the way he sort of presents all of his characters here, and I think it's mm-hmm. it's true of him as a person. Like I think he when he there, there's an optimism to Night Riders. You know, it's weird to say that after you know the ending being what it right. is, but which is, I feel like the ending is almost from a different movie and only makes sense if you read it as like a compare. You know, as like this is Romero, this is what he's about. This is this is where his career is going to go. Eventually, he just won't be able to work within the studio yeah. system, and that's what's going to happen to him. If figuratively, not wow. I mean, it, well, you yeah, know, like because he stays true to his ideals and he can't. And he'd rather stay true to his ideals. There's a line in one of the, uh, there's a song that's played at a funeral for one of, uh, one of the characters. And it says, I'd rather die in the middle of a hurricane than to never know the storm. And it's kind of like a nice, right. it was it was written for the movie. So it makes sense that it applies. But it also is a, a lift from like the once and future King. I mean, the kind of the whole last, act after the last motorcycle melee battle that mm-hmm. they have from what I recall is basically the last chapter of the once in future King. Okay. I'm, I'm sure somebody can correct me, but in that there's a, I don't know, this whole like metafictional thing of the story being passed down. And the, I think the author writes himself into the story as a child. It's, it's very confusing. Uh, it's like Tristram Shandy. <laughs> what are you talking about here? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and basically that, that he's told to like carry on the story and then mm-hmm. that he would grow up and then write the story. You see like the passing down of the sword from uh, Ed Harris's character to this kid who has recurred mm-hmm. at least one kind of major scene in the movie uh, earlier. But mm-hmm. yeah, so I don't know. I I definitely had the thoughts of it, like it being like an independent film crew, but I saw a lot of those the same comparisons to the Arthur legend, and because of where my brain is at, uh, the movie The Natural as well. Well, the Once a Future King, I, I can't speak to because I haven't read that. Yeah, I haven't read it. I mean, it probably in twenty two years, but believe in high school we actually read it and then watched the natural okay because it's like a, a direct a pretty direct analog uh, of that same story huh so i need it's been a while since i've seen the natural too <laughs> to be honest see now that's the thing i feel like we should rectify yeah given our given our interests of, like of baseball and, and clearly king arthur yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of the the actors who were in martin also show up in this movie mm-hmm. and I don't know if Martin is his most kind of concise and I don't know. Do, do you think it's his, it's his best done most re, well restrained film? Is that how you would put it? Well, so er, earlier I said most disciplined, but I also think just, I would okay. say Martin's probably his best, most defensible on aesthetic grounds. 
like on like pure craft it's just the most well-made i think top to bottom Uh, yeah given the the fact that it was like such a small crew Mm -hmm. i think it really shows his ability to to take these the landscapes around him and turn them into something Mm -hmm. you know that's it's the filmmaker's eye i don't know i was watching a uh a video essay by Tony Zhao earlier about Edgar Wright, mm-hmm. you know, because baby driver exists. And, uh, <laughs> he was talking about the fact that it, it takes a great director to show you something mundane in a new way. And, you know, that's kind of what I feel about Martin. Definitely. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know it, even though the supernatural never really enters into the story, except for around the fringes, when I was watching it, I get the idea something could happen at any time in like this crumbling American city, which I've seen dozens of in my life and, you know, probably hundreds of representations of in films, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the tone of it really works. If uh, Martin is kind of the, the most restrained and kind of tightly constructed, most disciplined, this seems to be at the, the far flung other edge <laughs> of, of that. I mean, it's, it's his most epic, I would have to say, uh, in a lot of ways. It's his first movie immediately after Dawn of the Dead, and I believe it was his first in like a three-picture deal that included Creepshow okay. and Day of the Dead. Sort of like, I don't know if this, I guess this happened a lot in the 80s where directors would get three, or maybe they just get offered them and don't take them now. But Toby Hooper had a mm-hmm. similar deal with Canon where he did Life Force, Invaders from Mars, and Texas Chainsaw 2. And I forget... I mean, this is a Laurel production, but I, I don't think that's the, the studio he made the deal with. I'm not sure who exactly he made it with, but uh, Dawn of the Dead made a ton of money, even though it was released unrated. Uh, it did really well, and Romero was actually able to profit off of it, unlike Night of the Living Dead. And so uh, he was given the opportunity to make the, you know three, another three-movie deal with this, and then this is the first one, and this is like, here we go, like, blank check, <laughs> kind of yeah, right. let's just I, I'll do whatever I want no one is going to tell me no and and it, it would it benefit from being a little shorter maybe but I, I don't I don't know it's it's a I showed it to my brother my younger brother who he's he's he really likes like westerns and a lot of I mean he has good taste in movies I think generally but he uh-huh. he couldn't he was like why did you why like why do you like that movie <laughs> like, I, like I don't know like so I feel like it's a maybe this is for Romero fans only or, or like serious. I don't know. Like it's a tough ask of, I think just a regular person who isn't all like, isn't really into like motorcycles or something or rent fares. <laughs> it's not very accessible. Well, like I think it's less accessible in its own way than Martin. Well, I, I didn't realize that I set it such a, uh, a niche nexus of <laughs> people who have a, an interest in motorcycles, Ren Fairs, King Arthur, and uh, George Romero. <laughs> yeah, we're in that, that, those Venn diagram bubbles. We're the only ones who are in all of those. <laughs> but yeah, the, it, it, it's intimidating because it's so long. If you sit down and it maybe treat it like a TV show, I mean, it's, all, it's more episodic than Martin. And a lot of Romero's movies. Oh, definitely. You could you could check in and check out, and the flow like the flow is not really going to carry you through. I don't think as well as it does with Martin. And it's just you know it's it's very it's very good, and I'm really glad it exists because it's crazy. <laughs> I'm kind of curious 
because it's like a weird movie. I feel like it's it's very good. Generally, I would recommend it, but it's a, I don't know what what where, what do you think? How do you solve a riddle like Night Riders? Because I enjoyed it. <laughs> I think we both enjoyed it, but it's like, what do we do with it? <laughs> yeah, I I I definitely enjoyed it, and yeah, I don't know where to to put it. I wouldn't know who to recommend it to necessarily it's it creates a world that i personally kind of want to go back to Mm -hmm. i i do kind of wish there was a a series about these people because i i really enjoyed not just ed harris's like super principled character but the whole ragtag crew except for is, is it fryer tuck that gets naked and eats pizza I mean, I like that character, but yeah, that was tough. <laughs> it, it was it was him and a and a, and a lady of, of equal size. Yes, naked and uh, eating pizza, very cheesy pizza, and it's a bit much to to, to see. I did kind of want some pizza after that, though. I've, I've, uh, I've got to admit. Well, I thought you were going to say the one character you didn't want to see anymore was uh, Stephen King's cameo. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, there's. <laughs> a, a definite through line of our uh, i mean it's unintentional on our part but a through line of of our our planned episodes here right of mm-hmm. stephen king is worked closely with romero a couple times definitely you know i think a friendship and fans of each other and we're gonna be talking about stephen king adaptations here in a little bit mm-hmm. and i think we both rewatched creep show as well kind of as yeah. just on our own we weren't planning on talking about it but any thoughts on creep show i think creep show well yeah i mean i think it's one of the best anthology films easy it really stands out there's a lot of uh if, if martin is probably his best film like this is the other film that he made that has all the technical aspects are top notch all the it feels like a real hollywood production more than a, like he got a lot of bigger actors to be in it like fritz weaver hal holbrook adrian barbeau and some people are in the other segments too <laughs> i forget who it was in the first segment with but ed harris returns from from night riders uh-huh. he still hadn't really taken off but he does a little uh he he prefigures the crispin glover dance from friday the 13th part four uh, with his dance in the first part of the creep show <laughs> And then, oh, that's a great pull. <laughs> of course, Stephen King's cameo in Creepshow is is uh, is much stronger than his cameo in Night Riders, and and it's just it's a really fun. They're not necessarily scary stories, but they really capture the feel of horror comics in, in a way that I think is it's sort of similar to what I would argue like Grindhouse does, where they're probably not. I mean, I think the Grindhouse movies are both pretty good, but they're they're maybe not the most accurate recreations of like the time but they're like they capture the spirit does that make sense yes yeah they make you feel much the same way that you think you felt watching those things mm-hmm. which you know whether it's uh, actually a reinterpretation or or not <laughs> i do think and i do read a lot of easy comics and like i think i've got two kind of large anthologies on my uh beside the bed right now what is it comics they don't they didn't want you to see and horror comics classics or something like that the stylistic flourishes are definitely straight out of the the ec uh Mm -hmm. style that we see 
uh, and creep show and i don't know on on that level on that kind of like technical experimentation level i think it's his most out there and kind of most fun movie oh definitely there's a lot of like uh colored gels and uh matte paint beautiful matte paintings especially on Jordy Verrill. i remember like just watching like like there's like the shot of the uh the background behind the farm. I don't even think it's a matte. I don't think that was a matte painting. That just looked beautiful. Like in the way it transitions from the actual, uh, so every, every segment transitions from the, like a, a comic page, uh, that's an anime right. illustration. And then it like just turns into live action. That was really like really cool to look at. And then, um, I remembered other famous people because it was Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen. That's what I was trying to think of. Cause that segment is incredible. And Leslie yeah, Nelson that is like so good. <laughs> that's like one of the all time best horror shorts or like, I guess thriller shorts as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. which uh, actually probably for me, the section in, in cat's eye, which also deals with infidelity and revenge uh, mm-hmm. is probably the next strongest. And I, I don't know if it's a, the thematic continuation between the two, <laughs> <laughs> but neither one of them start off as outright horror. It's more thriller material. I mean, the the something to tide you over from Creepshow is is li- literally later. I don't know what the legality, like legal proceedings, could be for this, but literally turned into The Vanishing. Like that's the plot of The Vanishing, or like the not the plot <laughs> of The Vanishing, but it's right. No, I, yeah, I see. I, I, I see hope where you've you're seen the vanishing. That, everyone listening, yes, <laughs> I didn't give away too much, but <laughs> it's a very, a very crucial part of the vanishing is very similar to that. And yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I don't, I, I don't know how that never, because I had never heard that before. And then as soon as I was watching it, I was like, what, what is this? Is, I've seen this before, and uh, <laughs> not in Creep Show. I've seen it, but uh, right, I really have to like sit down we could do a whole episode on horror anthologies and maybe should yeah because there's some segments that i could just talk about for days like vhs2 has that crazy cult segment that's just i actually haven't rewatched it since it came out but man i remember that just like a really good anthology horror segment is is it's just hard to beat if it can i can elevate Uh, the whole movie up to be like you know all-timer it's fun to see romero do something different Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, both the other movies we talked about today are drastically different. I mean, <laughs> I think he's thought of as Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, and then kind of diminishing returns mm-hmm. on his zombie films, which is sad because he is the reason that people made a lot of zombie films. I mean, Zombie 2 was, you know, like. Mm-hmm. directly because of what he did and i don't know C- could you credit him through that way with uh the entire like italian zombie genre or subgenre i guess from night of the from night of the living dead i would say for sure because there were zombie oh, yeah. it- italian zombie movies before zombie but or zombie before full cheese zombie right zombie 2 i don't know zombie 2 <laughs> in the u.s it's just zombie right uh, it depends what release you have. It's, it's zombie fight shark. Zombie. Oh, <laughs> so good. I, lo- that, I do love that, that movie. Ful- Fulci and uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis are two filmmakers that really know how to gross me the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> with gore. And like, they're really, they're so good at it that I can't, 
I can't be mad at like if 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 I if I let them get me, I'm like, all right, pull me, pull me ten times, shame on me. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know what, guys, that's on me. That's my bad. <laughs> I think we both watched Dawn of the Dead. Uh, yes, yeah. recently, and then I went on to Day of the Dead as mm-hmm. well. And there's just Day of the Dead is so, especially coming after like Night Riders and then and then Creepshow, like Day of the Dead is just such a sour. I don't know. It feels like that's like around the time that came out. I know I, I remember reading that he had like bigger plans for it and they wouldn't let him do it unless he guaranteed it would be rated R and he wouldn't guarantee that. And so he had like his budget cut considerably. And I feel like that was like from there, he ne- that was when he never really recovered. And like, he's st- like, I think monkey shines and the dark half are both really interesting, but they're not as good as night riders or, or as, as personal right you know there's a reason they they haven't lasted like his dead movies have you know and i think day of the dead is is for, i think cited by a lot of people as their their favorite and i think a lot of times it's some of the time it's to be contrary some of the time it's actually genuine i do think it has the best zombie effects of any of them but i think it's yes just personally i think i mean it's worth seeing for that alone but i, I think the, the performances are a little all over the place and it seems like i don't know it just seems in, in its own way, it seems kind of sad because it, it really doesn't seem like uh, outside of, I mean, it seems like he just shifted his priorities to do a lot less than what he wanted to do. And after that, he never really got back to doing something like Night Riders. Never was able to, I don't know, get that platform ever again. And it's it's a shame. It's not all on him either. I mean, I don't want it to sound like I've been like he's stuck to his guns and he should have worked with Hollywood. I mean, he could have, but it's not. You know, he also certainly earned the right to. I mean, he's someone that should have been making a movie every two or three years. Like for example, someone had asked. I think it was around the time Inherent Vice came out, and Paul Thomas Anderson. Someone asked, like, you know. Uh, why, why did Warner Brothers finance this movie? And they're like, oh, it was their turn. Like, it's it their, their turn to make a P.T. Anderson movie. And then another studio right. did Because he's such a good filmmaker that he just has to keep working. And, you know, people like, Scor- you know, even Scorsese fights for budgets nowadays, too, for some of his stuff. But, you know, you get filmmakers like Scorsese and Spielberg and, and a lot of filmmakers that can get anything they want made. And I, I wish Romero had been able to kind of to get up there. Uh, he certainly had the ability. Yeah, I wish that... <laughs> I wish that he had found like the, the Woody Allen deal where, you know, he had like reliable private investors who were just kind of patrons of the arts because I I do think that, I mean, for all the stuff that we've talked about, I I do think that given, given the, the brush and the canvas, he could have made some more. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's almost uh, like a Orson Welles type scenario where yeah a little bit you just yeah you just wish that he would have gotten you know a couple more times up at bat really right and it's not that his later stuff is is i was all like just bad or anything and it's not like he never got to make a big studio movie land of the dead was exactly that ultimately it, mm-hmm. it was rated r of course but it's just yeah he he definitely, you know, he, he worked and, and he made he made a lot of movies. He's working on another one that I think his one of his ADs is going to direct or has directed. I don't know if it's made or I don't know exactly what's going on with it. It's called Road of the Dead. So I'm not sure what's going on with that, if it was in pre-production, if it's still going to be made. 
but uh you know he, he kept at it and he kept working and and uh his his family will be taken care of now with the night of living dead money now that they've been able to re-copyright it and you know i mean that's a hell of a legacy to leave behind i mean not just you know in terms of family being taken care of but in terms of like cinema like i mean we're all living in the world he created right which is kind of crazy to think about. I was going to say that uh, I kind of think that, you know, might be the, the best legacy to leave is he made some fantastic films. Like he did, he changed the landscape. That's, I don't know what more you could want (laughs) as as a fan. I want more because I'm greedy and it's all about me, me, me. But I mean, uh, we, we should all be so lucky to, to leave a uh, lasting imprint like that. We, we sort of didn't really go into the takeaways uh, last time because we were just talking about jaws and I was getting real bitchy about something, something or other probably. (laughs) As per usual. As per usual. But I, I, I guess my, my takeaway, I think, here is that we should celebrate these filmmakers while they're alive. <laughs> like, so that they actually get received some of the feedback. Like, I mean, it's, I, it, it's not like no one ever said, you know, he made, he made a bunch of great movies. But, I mean, right. you know, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't only do this when filmmakers pass away. And, frankly, if we spent more time celebrating the filmmakers we have we the film culture would be a lot richer as a result instead of you know writing about you know the who's casting this now or blah 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 like who's doing this or you know ranting about what i did last time on jaws like ranting about colin trevorrow again you know or you know again again (laughs) did it would just be nice if we if we could maybe you know it, we'd all be healthier mentally and emotionally if we took some time out to celebrate the filmmakers and the films that we have that we that are that are worth you know deserve celebrating. And Romero was certainly one of those. That's sad. It's, so, it's sad. Um, I'm sad again. I like I kind of like had gotten unsad, you know, and then like kind of made peace with it. Uh, right. Now I'm sad. Now the, my grief has resurrected. <laughs> uh, but but you're saying basically that we should gather our our rosebuds while while we may. Something along those lines. Is that a is that one of your uh, King Arthur things? <laughs> no, that's a well. I mean, it's a it's a movie podcast, so that's a uh, Dead Poet Society reference here. I have seen that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very proud of you. <laughs> oh my gosh, I just bumped my head on the microphone because you made me laugh. <laughs> well, there's a filmmaker we could talk about who's still alive. Peter Weir. Maybe we'll do that. He's really good. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to do it right now, but uh, I mean, eventually. No, no, not, not at this moment. <laughs> but uh, no, <laughs> no, I was going to say it's, it's from a poem and it's about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, appreciating what you have yeah. while you have it. Carpe diem and whatnot. Carpe diem boys. I, don't know, I, think, no, I think it's a little on the nose. It's a little, it is. Okay. It's a little, 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 I'm just kidding. Yeah, but so, okay. is, so, is, so is listening to The Quiet Man uh, as you pass away. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I think I, I really like your takeaway, actually. I was going to talk about the fact that you should maybe pick your battles if you're going out there to try to make things. Mm-hmm. But I also appreciate people who don't and 
who are willing to die on every single hill. So it's, I don't know. It seems like it's a, it's a tough line to walk basically. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Know thyself. Is, is that a good one? There, there's a certain, I guess, talent will out, you know, like, I mean, if you, if you have the ability and you have the drive, you know, and you have the drive to do it, you're, you're going to do it. However it gets done. Um, uh-huh. it's just a question of, you can make it easy on yourself. You can make it hard on yourself. I guess that's one way to look at it. I'm not saying Rivera made it hard on himself. It sounds like from that anecdote about the meeting that he took, that he had to deal with a lot of assholes <laughs> and he just decided yes. he'd rather not. And I've done that. I, I quit working on a movie once because I thought the producers were terrible people. And I won't say that movie, but I, I wasn't even on it for like, I was in pre-production and I built their whole schedule out. And then they were like, just, they took me, they took, I don't know. It's a long story, but basically I quit and I like sent a really long email that I think they thought I was crazy telling them that they should try <laughs> uh Kangen water. Uh, it has, cause someone had accosted me in a supermarket and tried to sell me Kangen water and give me the set. It's like a pyramid scheme. And they had a video with like Pat Boone. You guys should look it up. It's actually, I don't want to advertise for him cause it is a pyramid. scheme. <laughs> <But> <laughs> so when I quit, I sent this really long email that I, I still have somewhere and I cherish it where I was just like, you know, I could tell you that like, this is ridiculous and that, you know, but I'd rather tell you about this. You know, I, I, I want to tell you that I'm fine. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. But uh, I, I don't want to talk about that because what's really important is that you guys try out Kangen water. And then I, I wrote that I would like write these paragraphs and then I would find the longest URL possible and copy and paste it in there to follow this link. And then uh-huh. I would write another paragraph. I mean, I just, I think they thought I was mentally ill and I, I, that's cool. Cause I thought they were awful people and I hope, I hope they read all of it. I wasted that much of their time. <laughs> So I, I think my takeaway is actually don't get on, on Andrew's bad side. Or I'll make you read a long email. <laughs> yeah. He will write you a, a very clever email that will waste your time. Man, and you'll I, think he's mentally ill. Honestly, I mean, you know, some people make Night of the Living Dead and that's like the pinnacle of their achievement. And then some people send really salty emails when they quit their jobs and that's their pinnacle you know and who's to say which is better who among us yeah yeah (laughs) i mean really what is the better legacy here Hmm? i guess that that long anecdote was as a way of saying that sometimes you're in the right to walk away from a bad situation like i feel yes uh i feel no moral my only concern was for the crew members who were staying around but my being there wouldn't have helped them any more than my sticking around and suffering with them wouldn't help them any more than me leaving and everything going the way it was going to go anyway. So no, I don't, I definitely don't think so. So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know how to follow that up. That's uh, you've never like quit and sent a really, like really, really weird email to do it. Uh, I, I don't think that I have, I, I know that, uh, I quit a job one time, told everybody to stay cool as I walked out. That was pretty great. That, that's pretty good. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty good. My, uh, I remember my dad uh, had told me when he left one job, I think when he was younger, he he would uh, take his feet. He turned around and faced the building and he took his feet and he, and he made an X on the ground in front of the building. 
like put a hex on it uh, uh-huh i've always wanted to do that but i i never remember to do it <laughs> in that situation <laughs> every, I, 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 forget, I forget to salt the earth every time i leave I, it's, it's the worst I, you know what are you gonna do one of these times i'm gonna remember it <laughs> i think it's pretty clear that we identify with that part of or i identify with that part of romero quite quite closely <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> well, we might cut that one out that was pretty bad that was a whole host of them. had some oysters in it uh they're a legion <laughs> oh my gosh well uh since since one of us is dying we should probably go <laughs> yeah probably on that note uh i think yeah we, we definitely went pretty far afield here at the end but i think generally you know we we hope we were able to point more people in the direction of uh, some of Romero's lesser works. By the way, Night Riders is available on Blu-ray from Shout Factory. Uh, so, by lesser works, you mean lesser scene. Lesser scene, yes. I, I certainly don't think I would probably watch uh, any of the three movies that we watched instead of Day of the Dead. As a matter of fact, I started Day of the Dead mm-hmm. and went back and watched the the Martin special features that I had, so... Yeah, I, uh, just to uh, tell you where my brain's at about it. I had seen Day of the Dead somewhat recently and remembered not like not you know being a little underwhelmed by it again, and then revisiting it was more of the same. And it was I yeah. I had attributed it to the fact that I had tried to get into Walking Dead, and whenever I rewatched Day of the Dead last time, it was like in close proximity to that. And all Walking Dead is is. At the or at least was at the time. I haven't watched it in a couple of seasons, but it was at the time was people bitching at each other, <laughs> and, being, and then you don't care. And <laughs> there were no characters other than Glenn, who were like had any personality. Glenn and and, and Maggie, I guess. And then I get you know, uh-huh. then the, 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 that show's taken some turns, from what I understand. And uh, I just don't really have any desire to continue watching it. And uh, anyway, Day of the Dead is kind of that compressed, that sort of bickering and sniping it's more purposeful but i was i was thinking it was suffering from close you know ex- being viewed in so such close uh, succession to the walking dead but no it's just it's just rough it's, it's just there's something dark you know dark about it i mean it has a happy ending in a way but it's still like i don't know it just seems like not like a missed opportunity but it's just there's something about it that's i don't know it, it seems despairing uh, I don't know. <laughs> I just like the idea that at the end of every show, you're gonna you're gonna bag on a a, a popular television program. What did I do, what did I do last time? Was it Stranger last Things? Time it was the Stranger Things. I like Stranger Things though. I'm excited about season two. I just mean it's like it's using the Amblin like '80s movie aesthetic. Yeah, no, no, I know. That's what I was. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Oh, one one uh, one little trivia note that might be interesting is that, and I knew this, but then it, he it, it came out again when uh, uh, George Matola, who directed uh, Adventureland, not George, Greg, Greg Matola. I'm an idiot. Greg Matola, who directed Adventureland, uh, and uh, Paul, and did he he directed Superbad, right? I believe. Uh, I don't know about that. I think he did. Uh, he his, the first one of the first films he worked on was Day of the Dead. Really, fun fact, yeah, yeah, he did do Super Bad, and he did I don't know. Keeping Up with the Joneses. I didn't know that. The things you learn. 
F- full disclosure, I've never seen Superbad. I mean, it's pretty good. You, you should you should see it. I don't know. I, I don't see a lot of comedies. Why? Uh, why? Why come? What? <laughs> what? What? what uh, do you not like to? Are you worried that you won't laugh at it, and and then you'll feel? I don't know. I I don't I don't find them funny a lot of times. That this sounds like this sounds like a bit, but it's totally not. It is. <laughs> it is very much how I feel. I'm I'm confused. <laughs> I know it's it's weird. People, I think normally think that I'm joking or mm-hmm. I don't know because they're like, "Well, you're you're a jolly person. You laugh at things." I'm like, yeah, but, I have seen you laugh. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, in real life even, but I don't know. Like, I don't know when people try to be funny. It seems like not funny to me a lot of the time. I mean, yeah, I like, uh, yeah. I could see. I don't know. That's tough. I don't know. I, I I find uh, the Coen Brothers movies really funny. What about like MacGruber? That was pretty good. That, I was I, hoping I, I was hoping you were going to say I love MacGruber or I haven't seen it, but instead you said it's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's uh, it's that's a little more stupid. I, I mean that in a good way. You know, like uh, like an airplane or something is mm-hmm. along those lines. So. I don't know. Okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll have a, maybe we should take this off the air. <laughs> yeah. I, so things that, that Josh needs to be uh, corrected about is are uh, Christopher Nolan films, which I, I might be this week even and comedies apparently. Well, I mean, you know, if you, there's reasons there's perfectly valid. There's a lot of people who don't like Christopher Nolan. I don't want, and I don't want the listener at home to think that I'm pushing him to make sure he has to like all the Christopher Nolan movies. I like them a lot. He can think Andrew said he that he was going to hurt me. He he <laughs> said that he was going to hurt me. You fell down the he was, stairs. He, was... <laughs> he told me not to say anything, but I can't. I can't stop it now. Uh, now that feels like a the really truth is weird. Out there. Feels like a bad thing to joke about, huh? Domestic oh, violence. Yeah, it really does. Probably That's... shouldn't have done that. No. God dang it. It's funny how that's like oh, a. Yeah. It was like an except like it's maybe like three years ago that was acceptable as like a go to like one liner and now immediately as soon as I said it I'm like uh yeah I don't I know feel a little queasy about it now like if you go watch The Hangover and like some of the jokes on The Hangover it's like man everyone laughed at that seven years ago eight years ago and now it's like you can't say things like that in a movie. Yes, since uh, all this is probably going to get cut out, I didn't, I, I didn't really like The Hangover, uh, and I hate Napoleon Dynamite. Woo! Okay, it's fine. It's fine. Just, just, just getting it all out there. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let, just real quick, since we, you know, this is perfectly uh, matching, uh, you know, in, in 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 tune with our episode about George A. Romero. Uh, I think that Todd Phillips is a very, he's a pre- he's a good director. Uh, I think he should direct action movies because he does these action sequences that are very elaborate in movies like the hangover sequels and due date. And, but they're, they're not funny. They're kind of scary because they're, they're in a comedy and they're like very violent. And I'm like, just give him like Michael Bay money and let him do something. I mean, granted, I think a lot of people don't like his like worldview and I can't really argue with that. It's a pretty sour view of a lot of his stuff. The hangover movies especially yeah. are pretty uh pretty dim 
portraits of humanity. Generally, I think his skill set might be more might be more suited to something else at this point. I'd be interested to see. I don't know. I haven't seen War Dogs. Maybe that sucks. Maybe I should shut up. <laughs> I, I did kind of like Due Date. Yeah, I, re- I mean, I remember liking Due Date, but there's like a car chase in it where like the car flips over, and yes. I'm like, oh my god, I'm like really worried for these yeah. people. <laughs> like that's not what well, I'm supposed to be feeling right now. It's kind of like I've saw a, a few people worried about the the violence in Baby Driver, and that's interesting. I was like, wow, I didn't even. Like, it all yeah. seemed kind of, of a piece to me. But once I thought about it, I was like, yeah, I could see that. I can yeah. see it as being disturbing because it is very, very graphic once it happens. It's like um, my, my go-to for this is always, like, I think about uh, The Lone Ranger, the Gore Verbinski movie, which yeah, I yeah. really like. I don't know how you feel about it. I really, really like that movie. And it's it's very, it's tonally, it has some really weird things going on uh mm-hmm. not the least of which is that we meet a villain in the film i don't even remember i don't think it's the main villain even no because the main villain's like tom wilkinson or something but we meet the like a henchman i think it's played by i think he's played by william fickner and he uh kills uh, the lone ranger's brother and eats his heart <laughs> <laughs> and that, that that seems excessive here, here's what's great about that so that's deeply unsettling to, to see even like uh, i think it's shown like reflected in someone's eye or something like you don't really see, uh-huh. you don't really see it in a pg-13 disney movie blockbuster you know and granted coming from the parts of the caribbean guy those movies have some dark things to them nothing quite this dark what's what's crazy about it is originally i believe I, I, they had to cut the budget for the lone ranger considerably because they cut werewolves out of it and i believe that character was originally supposed to be a werewolf and by making him not a werewolf and just a cannibal, it makes it way worse. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, amazing. And it's, it was like such a weird, like, t- like it, it, I mean, I love it because that movie is completely insane, but it's, that's a case of like, it's like Anthony Jeselnik has a joke where he, he was like, he was, he was going to tell a joke and it was like offensive to like Asians. Cause it was like Asian kids are smart or something was the punchline. And he deliberately uh-huh. like does stuff like that. That's his type of humor. Like he's like trying to like, just be like deliberately anti PC yeah. kind of stuff. And yeah. usually it's pretty funny. And then, uh, this is like his stand up bit too. Like it's the stand up bit is like him going on a late night show. He said, I don't think he says which one. And then he, he tells them that that's a joke he's going to do. And they say, we don't think you should do that. Cause you might offend, uh, like the Asian, you know, viewers and stuff. And they're like, all right, yeah, that's fine. Like what, you know, they're like, could you just make the punch on something else? Make the punchline something else. And he's like, just make the punchline different. Why don't I say something like, oh, the, uh, you know, about them building the railroads? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Uh, well, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's like, no, that's way worse. <laughs> so just to, that's uh, this episode of not really seeing the full picture. <laughs> uh, hey, are, are there any other stand-ups that you like? You want to you do their bits too? Uh, I mean, it feels, uh, <laughs> feels like we're properly honoring Knight Riders by just running very long. <laughs> okay <laughs> thank you everyone for listening please uh, rate uh, review subscribe on itunes if you haven't already you probably have i apologize for everything <laughs> wow <laughs> just just a, a, a massive blanket apology yeah just everything the thing that you should apologize for is not moving the the outro up to the top of the schedule for, to be able to read I'm sorry, I didn't understand that this was an episode called How the Sausage Gets Made.
and we were going to talk about <laughs> going to talk about this our week podcast. on parting the kimono. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the show on the show. <laughs> Stupid, L- ladies and gentlemen. You can check us out on social media. You can follow me at a forty eighty eight on Twitter. And please don't hesitate to email us at empathymachinepodcast at gmail.com with thoughts, responses, questions, comments, suggestions, and or, and we might actually get some now. Desperate please to stop. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Spartacus. That's S-P-A-R-T-I-C-K-E-S. You can check out links to my work at www.the79hawks.com. This has been a 79 Hawks production. And I would like to extend the the warmest of thanks to our I believe we can we could call him our beleaguered editor. <laughs> after this one, yeah. And yeah, after this one. Uh Drew DeVore, who also works on the uh, fantastic podcast Sirens of Scream, which you should check out. Absolutely. Thank you, Drew. And thank you for listening. Thank you. We'll keep the light on for you. Well, uh, I'm Tombo Dad. We'll leave the light on for you. That's terrible. Why am I doing an accent? I'm, I don't know. I can't. It's not an impression. I don't know. We, we got to come up with a catchphrase. <laughs> we got to come up with a catchphrase. That's our catchphrase. All right. There we go. All right. It's a perfect sign off. We've got to come up with a catchphrase. Thank you.